So what you'll see in the Facebook group is four bullet points that will likely make or break your family's financial future. And I, I wish I had seen it laid out in this simple of a format years ago. Welcome to the Be Bold or Be Forgotten podcast. My name is Brian Brown. Have you ever wondered why some people's stories are told for generations after they've passed, yet most are forgotten within just a few short years? Have you ever put much thought into which category you'll end up in? What we're going to do is go behind the scenes and let anybody who wants to watch me fight. Fight to become a lineage maker for my family while my chips are down and the odds are against me. Maybe in that process, you'll decide that you want to become a lineage maker too. So I see that you're tuning into this episode because you wanted to hear about how I messed up. (laughs) Well, I don't know what to say about that other than I'm glad my pain could be your entertainment. All right. But hey, on a serious note, I don't blame you for wanting to hear the story because back when I used to hear stories about people who lost a lot of money uh, or down a lot of money, I couldn't help but ask myself, how in the heck do you pull that off? And now, of course, I have personal experience to help answer that question, uh, unfortunately. And as I share during this episode, I hope you can learn some things so that you never have to have that firsthand experience. But there's also a very good chance, I think, that you're going to gain some insight into why you do what you repeatedly do. And just a quick side note, none of this is financial advice because, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, I'm just sharing some of my experience. Cool. All right. So here we go. See, if I could boil it all down to just one thing that caused my failure, I would have to say that it was this. Winning. It was winning that ultimately led to the failures. See, my all-in mentality, it had worked for many years in several different cases in several different areas. For instance, uh, we were all in building our travel business. Sure, it was only five hours a week to start and we were doing other things at the time, but mentally we were all in. That was our plan A. And as a result of that, two years after graduating from college, most of our peers were grinding it out in jobs that they hated while we were financially free. Uh, In our first hard money loan that we ever did, we lent out about 70% of our liquid cash at 11%. So while most of our peers were excited about getting a 1% to maybe 5% return on their CDs at the bank, we were making double-digit returns with our money. And I was starting to feel a little smart. Then we did our first real estate deal. And some people told us that it was too risky and that the numbers didn't work. Granted, they had never done a fix and flip. But we decided to move forward. We used about 95% of our liquid cash to purchase the property. Um, Plus, we borrowed an additional 25 to make it all happen. So again, pretty much all in. So we make about 12% on that deal. And uh, that marked the first time that we borrowed somebody else's money to make money. And at the time, most of our peers are afraid to leverage other people's money. Um, But for us, doing that... We got a win. It, it, it was a win for us, and it was a win for the lenders. So then we get into stocks, and 
Uh, there's a multimillionaire friend that I have. He tells me he wouldn't touch stocks. So um, despite that, I start trading with no training whatsoever and end up making $30,000 in a single trade. Now I'm sitting here, I was right, and my multimillionaire friend was wrong. Then we do another real estate deal. Same thing, a millionaire mentor says he wouldn't touch real estate with a 10 foot pole. We put even more money into a deal, borrow even more capital from others as well, and we make even more money, and of course, so do the lenders. Again, I was right, he was wrong. So I'm starting to believe that I've got things figured out pretty well. And somewhere along the way, my wife and I agree that uh, we agree on this idea called the $30,000 rule, meaning I have the leeway to make financial decisions without consulting her as long as it's $30,000 or less. I, we made an agreement. We, made a, uh, we had a common understanding that I was taking charge of the family's finances. And so that's how I operated. And so I borrow $30,000 to put into stocks without consulting Sarah. And uh, that's, by the way, above and beyond what I've already got invested. And I ultimately turn that into $100,000 in less than a year. Again, at this point, I've read no books. I have attended no seminars. I have some, uh, on, on those specific subjects, I should say, um, I've got some good people that I'm working with on the real estate side, but nobody that I'm really consulting with uh, bigger picture. And after all, the people that I had had conversations with that had bigger net worths than me, I had been right and they had been wrong. So maybe a little bit of, you know, ego, I've got it figured out, started coming into play, even though I didn't realize it. So all this time, I'm continuing to work extra hard building the travel business and our residual income is continuing to grow. And when I say I was working hard during this season, um, I want to explain because I would do things like drive 500 miles round trip to do business meetings, get home at 1, 1 1.30 in the morning, then catch a same morning flight to go train 400 people in a different city. Um, I would do things like fly 30 hours round trip to Europe do meetings there for 72 hours, then come back home and go straight from the airport to another meeting. And so don't get me wrong, the lifestyle choices that were available to us because of this hard work were incredible. We had no boss, nobody telling us where to be, when to be there, so on and so forth. I mean, at one point, I go on a fishing trip to Canada and during that week, make more money doing nothing other than fishing than I did the entire first two years of building our business. The, the compound effect was really starting to, um, you know, we were, we're starting to see the results of that. So life is good. We're still living below our means, reinvesting a very high percentage of that income, and I'm doing my best to multiply. Uh, it wasn't about more, more, more. It was really about growth, progress, and being a good steward of our resources. You know, I'm diversified, real estate, business, stocks, um, other assets and and financial vehicles as well. And the all-in strategy had worked pretty darn well. Leveraging other people's money worked pretty darn well for everybody that was involved. And then it worked even better. 
See, I had noticed that I could have made more money trading stocks if I had used something called stop losses, which uh, if you're not familiar, can automatically exit you from a position when a stock hits a predetermined price. And I learned about it in this book that was uh, called, or that is called, How I Made $2 Million in the Stock Market, authored by a gentleman, uh, the late Nicholas Darvis. So I decided to start implementing that strategy and that strategy would pay off very handsomely in my next move. So let's fast forward a little bit. I have $220,000 in a single stock, all in. Some of that money is borrowed too. And at one point, I'm down over a hundred grand on paper with that stock. And eventually though, I end up making over $400,000 in a single trade because the stock went up and I used stop losses to exit my position. As you can imagine, it was a day that I will never forget. See, I've never been high on drugs, but I'd imagine that that's what it might feel like because I had just made in a single day seven times more than the median American household earns an entire year working full time. Just to put things in perspective. See, it wasn't like I had won a lottery ticket one random day. It had taken me many years of building a business, saving income, reinvesting, uh, expanding my money blueprint, and connecting with the right people, and doing those things over and over and over again. Now, if you were me, what would you do next? Let me, let me back up and ask that question a little bit differently. If you had developed a track record of success, getting win after win after win by doing things a certain way, would you continue to do things that got you those wins or would you decide to completely change it all up? <laughs> uh, now, if I could go back in time and give myself advice, knowing what I know now, I would say this. Okay, dude, nice work. You've had quite the string of success. So here's the deal. There are two big problems that you got going right now. First, you just had a huge hit of dopamine. You weren't aware of this, but you're going to want to chase that high again. You're going to want to outdo what you just did. Which leads to the second problem. You had this big win, sure, but you did it in a way that broke smart rules of investing. You invested an idiotic amount of your liquid net worth into a higher risk investment. And the worst part about this all is that because the strategy worked in the past, you're going to think that it's going to work again in the future. Because, I mean, hey, People that had a higher net worth than you were, were wrong and, and you were right. So you must kind of have it figured out. Now, borrowing money for lower risk real estate deals, smart. Borrowing money for higher risk asymmetric investments, idiotic. See, you were diversified. Good job. But diversification, <laughs> which you'll later learn, isn't the full answer. In order to be a smart investor, you're going to need to learn what's called 
asset allocation. See, dude, it's not just about being diversified. It's about the percentage of your net worth that's in each type of asset class. There's strategy there. But you won't learn this until you fail. And fail you will. You will fail by putting a large percentage of your liquid net worth and additional borrowed money beyond the $30,000 rule into higher risk assets. And this time, things won't go as planned. This time, you'll choose against using stop losses for some reason. You will go on to take very significant losses. Some assets you'll choose to keep and you'll be down significantly on paper. Yes, maybe some of them still have a chance at working out, but you will spend far too much energy hoping that they'll go up. And Brian, you won't get on with your life until you mentally cut your losses and take action like you're starting over. But you'll do it. And you know what? I forgive you. Now, that doesn't mean I'm happy about the stress that it put on my wife and my family. It doesn't mean the decisions that I made were okay. And it doesn't mean that they don't have real consequences. I mean, I am certainly not happy that I don't have more liquid cash at this very moment to make moves in different markets and opportunities. Now, my natural reaction is to be hard on myself and to beat myself up. But... I've recently come to learn that being hard on yourself is actually counterproductive to progress. So as much as I'm tempted to go there, spend time there, I know it's not going to help me. I've simply got lessons to learn and be better for it. Now, at this point, I realize that you may not relate to what I'm sharing. You may not have made such aggressive financial moves and, you know, maybe throughout this, this episode, you've learned about some financialist mistakes to avoid, but I think I would be doing you a disservice if I don't take it a step further. See, I believe that there's some not so obvious lessons in my story. Lessons about decision making and how those decisions help us to become a lineage maker or not. And I want to be clear, I am not a scientist or doctor But from what I've recently learned, our brain chases certain chemicals that give us a certain feeling. And apparently, a lot of us chase the right chemicals in the wrong way. For instance, and you've probably heard of some of these, the brain chases endorphins. One of the ways that we get this is from working out or by doing something challenging. Um, We also get that chemical uh, released from solving problems. So if your life or your business is going great without problems, it might only be so long before your subconscious wants to create one in order to get that endorphin chemical if you're not getting it from the right places. You know, why do some people live their whole life check to check even though they make enough money that they don't have to be? Because they love the feeling of having to scramble and figure it out, solve the problem just in the nick of time. Endorphins. Why does the business owner get hung up on solving that small technical problem that they could probably pay somebody 50 bucks to solve, even though they could be using that same time to acquire a new customer and net their company 10 grand? Well, because they're getting that endorphin from solving the technical problem. 
Have you ever met anybody who creates problems for themselves for seemingly no reason? It's probably because they have no other real source of endorphins. So apparently, again, I'm, I'm not the expert, the solution is to get a healthier source of the chemical. And you can do that by things like playing sports, uh, board games, or engaging in, in other relevant hobbies so that you don't unintentionally create problems in your life or your business or work just so you have a problem to solve. Now, dopamine is another chemical that the brain releases. And we can get it from notifications on our phone and react to whatever comes to us. Or we can also get it from setting up our day and checking things off uh, a a to-do list that are very productive and help us make progress. The scary part is, however we've chosen to get that chemical in the past, will likely continue to be the place that we get it in the future. It becomes this habit. And I would ask you to stop and ask yourself, where do I choose to get the chemical? You've probably never thought about it before. I had never thought about it before. But in a lot of ways, it makes a lot of sense. Now, there's a few more chemicals, but um, I'll cover just one more. And it's called serotonin. And to my understanding, it's the feeling of well-being and happiness, and it largely comes from the approval and connection of our peer group. Again, I'm no therapist, but just think about if this could be true. Do people typically get more support when they're down and out from a failure or from when they're on top of the world winning? Now, I've got a great peer group who supports me and celebrates me in virtually anything and everything that I do. very blessed in that way. I also very intentionally set it up that way. But I'll tell you, in the process of sharing my story and challenges here with you, I've had more people come out of the woodwork to support me and empathize with me, maybe, maybe more than ever before in my life. See, I think if we're not aware, our brain chases that chemical of of serotonin by creating struggle, drama, and challenge to get that connection from our peer group instead of chasing in a way that can help you make progress. And if we get it the wrong way, we're likely to stay in that same place of struggle because it just becomes this habit. And most people would rather feel connected with their friends than outgrow them, win big, and lose that sense of connection with them. But the opposite is also true. How many people do you know that maybe stay in a career that they dislike simply because they're unwilling to give up the admiration that they receive from their friends and family about their fancy title? Now, the truth is you can have a great community of people around you who care about you and support you while you're winning and while you're doing something that you love, even if it's not glamorous. So the Healthy way of getting this chemical, uh, serotonin chemical, is by surrounding yourself with people who support you and celebrate you in good times and in bad. And developing that circle takes a lot of intentionality, but it's worth it. Now, I say all of that, which is a lot, to ask you just this one question. Could there be an area of your life where you're chasing the right chemical, the right feeling, in the wrong way. And maybe a good litmus test for that is if you don't love where you're at in life, it could be a good time to evaluate 
why you do what you do so you can put an end to the sabotage. <laughs> As you can see, you know that that's a question I need to ask myself and continue to marinate on, even though through this process, I've learned a lot about why I did what I did. I've got to learn from it. So let me end this episode by giving you an incredible resource that's directly related to this episode. So I'm going to do listeners a huge favor and post an image in the Lineage Makers official Facebook community. What you'll be looking at is a screenshot from a gentleman who we paid five grand to to subscribe to his financial knowledge and recommendations. Interestingly enough, I'll be talking about others like him in the next episode, which is entitled The Doppelganger Advantage, which uh, is kind of a funny name, but I believe this might turn out to be one of the best episodes in the short Be Bold or Be Forgotten history. So what you'll see in the Facebook group is four bullet points that will likely make or break your family's financial future. And I, I wish I had seen it laid out in this simple of a format years ago. And you can choose to ignore them at your own risk. At the end of the day, we got to ask ourselves, if I don't win, who's going to lose? If I don't win, who is going to lose? Because here's the truth. If we don't do something significant with our lives, why does it even matter how long we live? And the way I see it, we've got two options. Tiptoe quietly to the grave of forgotten or be bold and become a lineage maker for our families. We're going to go on a journey together to find out exactly what it takes to make sure when our great-grandkids get asked who their great-grandfather is, they won't fall victim to a frozen pen. <laughs>